Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today Aaron, Greg, and I are going to be talking about money-saving tips for mountain biking. So we've shared some of these tips before, and we're going to reference some of the articles uh, that we've written about the subject, but rather than focusing just on upgrades and things for your bike, we're going to run the gamut here and talk about ways you can save when you travel with your mountain bike and ways you can save when you're upgrading or buying new parts. So it should be a good discussion. So we're going to jump right in by starting with repair and maintenance. So one of the things that I'm a big fan of is buying a new tool every time I need to do a repair. What do you guys think about that? Yeah. uh, You know, one thing about working on bikes is there are some tools that are that you need that are bike specific. You know, you can do a lot of repairs on your bike with a set of Allen keys and, you know, some open end wrenches and stuff like that. But there are things like bottom bracket tools and, you know, headset tools and other things like that, where you really can't make anything else work. So you have to buy a bike specific tool. So the one thing I will say with that is, you know, just like with any kind of tool, you don't really want to cheap out. You get what you pay for. I know we're talking about saving money, but in the long run, if you buy a nicer tool up front, more often than not, it's going to pay for itself. Yeah. And even so, let's say you're, you know, you got a repair that's going to cost 50 bucks at the bike shop. You know, that's a lot of money to spend on a tool. Like if you need just like a crank extraction tool or something like that, it's not going to cost you nearly 50 bucks. So you might as well get a really nice one, one that you'll have for a long time. So along with that, uh, not everybody knows how to work on their bike. And if you don't have a friend to teach you, a lot of times, People will look at like books and stuff. I know I've bought a number of repair manuals and books over the years, but these days YouTube has a lot of that stuff, right? And that's for free. Yeah, YouTube is free, so take advantage of it. I'm a visual learner myself, and I use YouTube a lot for repairs, Um, not even necessarily on bikes. I've actually learned how to fix stuff on my truck by watching YouTube videos. So pretty much anything you could want to do to anything anywhere ever has already been done and documented on YouTube. So I would highly recommend watching videos. But you also, you should be honest with yourself about your mechanical aptitude because some of us are more mechanically inclined than others. Some of us don't have the patience for it and might end up costing yourself more money in the long run if you go in with ham-fisted mechanic style and start snapping bolt heads off. Yeah, that was going to be the one thing I was going to add to this bit because, you know, if it's a really expensive component you're working on and you don't know what you're doing, you can very easily break something, especially if you over torque something or you're trying to fix something and you just go about the wrong way. You can end up spending more money than if you'd just taken it in. And, you know, I think a lot of things we're going to talk about in this podcast, we're talking about, you know, spending your time to save some money. But, you know, if you have a limited amount of time with a lot of these things, you know, there's ways you can spend money and save time. So I think you've got to factor in, but I think we're going to double down on the saving your dollars for the rest of this. Definitely. Okay. So also talking about maintenance and repair, a lot of the repairs that mountain bikers end up needing to do are things that can be avoided. So taking care of equipment is really important, right? For saving money. Yeah, I mean, if you just take care of your stuff, it's going to take care of you, right? So you store your bike properly. When you stop on the trail, don't lay it drive side down because you could 
bend your, uh, you know, your rear derailleur hanger or something like that. You know, so just be be conscious of those things. Watch out for your um, your disc rotors uh, so you don't bend those. Um, try to keep them clean so you don't you know don't wear out your pads too soon. Uh, you know, don't let your fork stanchions get scratched. The lower parts, it's you know, that's all just aesthetics. So scratches aren't a big deal there. But you know, if you scratch the upper part of your fork, you could. Um, you know, that's going to let dirt in and you could be damaging your seals and the internals. So yeah, just taking care of your equipment goes a long way towards not having to spend money on your bike repairing it. A lot of people that I know, especially beginners, seem to be really hard on their bikes and end up having to repair stuff a lot. Is that something that people can avoid or is that something you can do to save yourself some money? Yeah, I'll jump in here. I, uh, because I've been there before and I, I broke a crap ton of stuff when I was first riding. And I think this is a sort of a dual part thing. Number one is when you're first starting to learn to ride, you know, you can be really hard in the way you ride. You just bash into things, uh, which can end up, you know, breaking everything from your know, rims to flatting tires to uh, other parts of your bike and learning some finesse so you don't hit things as hard and you might jump over things instead of trying to ride through them, uh, that can really save you. But I think the other sort of flip side of this equation is not only do you have uh, beginners or less experienced or riders with less finesse, um, you know, being hard on their bikes, but the beginner riders also have cheaper bikes with less durable components. So that's sort of like a two part, like double whammy that's going to hit you really hard. So if your bike is less durable in the first place and you're not riding, uh, as well as maybe you could be, you know, expect to start breaking some things. So you can both improve your skills, but also improve your bike a little bit. And that could help. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's part of the learning curve, right? Growing pains. I think we all go through that as you start out as a new rider. You definitely lack some of that finesse. And as you get better, you'll learn how to be lighter on the bike and learn not to bash your bike into things. And, uh, you know, like shifting is one is, is a skill. It seems like it's so simple uh, on paper, but when you get out on the trail, it's actually, you know, there's there's a lot of thinking that goes into shifting and shifting properly so you're not jamming up a bunch of gears in the middle of a climb where you're already putting down a lot of power where you could have the opportunity to snap a chain or you know rip your rear derailleur off so a lot of that stuff will just come with more time on the bike yeah speaking of drivetrain issues one of the things i've learned to do over the years that saved me money is to check my chain regularly to make sure that it's not stretched out you know it's like a eight dollar tool that you can buy that checks the chain growth for you and if if the chain is is getting stretched out and getting too long what that's going to do is it's going to ruin your cassette and potentially even your chain ring on the front so you want to make sure you replace that regularly or you're going to end up not only needing to buy a new chain you're going to need to buy a new cassette and possibly other parts as well are there other things like that that you can check constantly or you know keep clean that's going to make the part last longer yeah, the, the drivetrain is definitely the, the easiest one. I mean, just keeping your chain cleaned and lubed and, like you said, making sure it's not getting too stretched out will save you a lot of money. But other things like your suspension, keep that clean. Keep your, you know, after every ride, you should wipe off any dirt or anything around the seals. If you have a full suspension around the shock and, you know, on your fork, obviously. I like to run a fender on my all my bikes. And I run it year-round, not just in, during the wet season because, 
that really helps keep dirt and dust and grime and stuff from getting in your fork seals, which will uh, make your fork work better and longer. One other thing with suspension is I've heard that if you maintain your suspension regularly at the set intervals, you know, change your oil, changing your seals, and doing minor maintenance, that can keep you from having a major rebuild later. My problem is I never do that. So I'm borderline right now. I've got to try to get that done to avoid you know, having to do a major overhaul and rebuild later on. So um, sometimes it can sound like a lot of money, especially when you're talking like 50 to 100 bucks to um, maintain your suspension, like one suspension component, like every year or less than a year. But, you know, if it's a thousand dollar fork, that can save you over the long haul. Yeah. I mean, forks in particular are one thing that if you're kind of an advanced home mechanic, you can really work on at home. Just doing that, like you said, revamping your your seals and replacing the oil is it's there's not much to it um again that's something you obviously want to be sure you know what you're doing but um that's a way to save a lot of money because once you have you know you just really have to pay for the suspension oil and maybe every once in a while um add new seals so that's something you can you can do way cheaper at home so another way that a lot of mountain bikers are saving money is by downgrading their mountain bikes so not getting the most expensive stuff, you know, riding bikes that are some would consider past their prime. John Fish did an article on single tracks recently about the subject. Greg, what's your take on this? Yeah, I definitely have downgraded my bike. And um, for instance, my stock bike came with a lot of XTR and XT components. And I've downgraded a lot of them as they've worn out and needed replacement uh, to SLX stuff because. SLX still performs really, really, really well, uh, significantly cheaper in certain areas like the derailleur specifically uh, that can easily get snapped off on a rock. Like it's a lot less painful going forward if you know, you only have to put an, an SLX derailleur on there or you only snap off an SLX. Like uh, the reason I switched to that SLX is because I destroyed my uh, much nicer XT derailleur at the time. So you know, thinking about things like that can end up saving you money like over the long term, um, especially on very vulnerable parts. Yeah, and there's really with with the Shimano SLX stuff and the SRAMs GX and even their NX group, which is their kind of most affordable one by eleven group. There's not really a huge difference in performance. You know, there will be pretty significant difference in weight like as you step down between the groups like particularly once you get to nx but you know the the performance is great i mean you know i've tested the even the nx group on a couple different bikes and i've been really impressed with how it performs so you know there's you're you're definitely gonna you're gonna save a lot of money and you're not losing much performance so that's a it's a good idea and some of the less expensive stuff can be more durable. Greg, I know you said earlier that, you know, a lot of entry level bikes are not, they don't always use the best components, but you know, if you're talking about really, really high end, like if you're looking at an XX one derailleur because it's super lightweight, well, that lightweight sometimes comes with a penalty in that they'll, you know, parts will wear out. They're more finicky and stuff. So again, you can save money by buying a cheaper piece Uh, that's maybe going to even last longer than the more expensive one. So what about when stuff does break? Sometimes there are warranties involved and you can get your stuff replaced for free, which is always awesome. Greg, did you have an example of that? 
Yeah, I nowadays I always ask about the warranty on products because lots of times I'm having a lot of parts fail too soon, but thankfully if it fails within your warranty period, the brand will should come through for you and replace it. Uh, a good example of this is my RockShox Reverb Dropper Post, which I'm on. I don't know. I think I need to get like warranty four done, but I'm I'm tired of getting it warrantied, so I'm hoping to get a a different post in for review. But you know, RockShox has come through and warrantied it like uh, at least three times already, and sent me their newest post uh, this most recent time around, and uh, just broke a a rear maxle in a way that shouldn't have broken, and I think that's going to be a warranty issue as well. So you know, lots of times you see this stuff break, and you know, if it really isn't your fault, you could get that covered and not have to pay any money. So it's all, it never hurts to ask. But a plug-in here, this is one reason why it's uh, nice to work with the same bike shop over and over again. Because lots of times your bike shop will track your purchases when they happen and what parts you bought from them. So it's a lot easier than saying trying to prove when you bought a part if they've got that on file already. Okay, so shifting gears a little bit now, we're going to talk about saving money on new bike stuff. So one of the things that I like to do is to buy things in bulk whenever possible. So inner tubes, sealant, cables, housing, etc. Aaron, have you done that in the past, and how's it worked out for you? Yeah, especially with things like sealant. It really helps to order in advance. There are those times where you're like, ah, oh, crap, I need some stands, and you go to the shop, and they only have the little two ounce bottles of sealant and you know you need a couple of those per tire can add up really quick but if you can order that stuff ahead of time you can really you know you can get like a half gallon of stands for you know 15 bucks or something like that so uh another thing you could do you know if you wanted to buy like a box of cables or a box of housing or something like that you could pull your money together with some buddies and and order it and then split it because i mean a box of cables will you know, last you a lifetime for sure. So maybe you want to spread that out amongst a, a few other people to help bring the cost down. Yeah, I once bought a thing of uh, the little caps that you put the, on the end of your derailleur cables, you know, yeah. little like crimp caps. Yeah. <laughs> and like, it was like 500 of them or something for like $5. Yeah. So if anybody <laughs> needs any of those, I got, I got a bunch of them. Nice. Yeah. I mean, especially now with one by drivetrains and you know, most brakes are going to be hydraulic. You only need one cable crimp per bike. So that's a lot of, right. that's, that's how they bikes. got me. They yeah. knew those things were going away. <laughs> I would also say, you know, again, kind of going back to the repair thing is, uh, you should learn how to properly patch inner tube. Um, not the little shitty glueless patches, like the actual, where you use like the rubber cement and you, you, know, you have to sand the, the tube up. You can put a lot of patches on a tube. I'm here to tell you, and they'll keep working. I've patched tubes basically until something around the valve fails, like either the, <laughs> the you know the valve stem will finally wear out or or pull out of the tube. So that's you know that's a patch kit's what a dollar, two dollars, and that can keep your tubes going for a long, long time. You know you can repair tires to a certain extent. You know kind of depending on where the damage is and how severe it is. There's different products. So there's tire boots you can get, but those don't really work particularly well tubeless but there are a few different companies doing uh tire plugs so those are like uh kind of rubberized threads almost that you put in the tire and they'll they'll seal different size hole like up to a pretty large hole like up to a quarter of an inch in some cases so 
you know, that's a way to get some more miles out of a tire and continue using it tubeless where otherwise it might have been trashed before. Right on. So another way that I've found that I can save money on buying new bike equipment is to look for seasonal closeouts. And one of the things that we do at Single Tracks is we have a weekly deals email where we're always looking at online retailers to find out, you know, what's being closed out and we send out the best deals. So if you're not on that list, definitely get on there. Uh, but local bike shops do it as well, right, Greg? Yeah, I would say this is the number one tip to save money when you're buying new gear. Like buying uh, last year's product can go a really long ways and the prices come down a lot. You know, sometimes you do have to jump on these closeouts, but other times it can take brands and shops a really long time to offload that stuff. Like you will see the same bike sitting on a shop floor for two years if they, you know, if they, Nobody's coming in in the right size to buy that bike. So there's stuff to be had locally. And uh, even I was just putting together full suspension buyer's guide and was looking at some direct-to-consumer brands. And you know, an example is Comensal had all their new 2017 bikes on the site, but they were still trying to sell their final few like 2016 bikes. And those prices had come down like five to $700 from last year. And you're still getting a brand new bike that's... You know, it's changed a little bit for this year, but not a whole heck of a lot. So plenty of money to be saved there. What about this, guys? Do you Is it okay to haggle with the local bike shop and try to get a better price? Haggle? Uh, Negotiate, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I don't know. I usually wouldn't do that. I don't know. I, that No, I would not, personally. I really don't do that. Like, I know some people do that for some things, but... It's like if I'm going to, I don't know, I, that, maybe that's just not my personality, but I'm probably not going to do that. And if I want a better deal, like I'm just going to like buy it off of Amazon or something. Yeah, I will say that I have done it in the past. I haven't done it in a while, but yeah, when I was a college student, for sure, I would go in and, you know, and, and I always got a better price. They always took 100 or 200 bucks off. So, you know, if, if you're not comfortable with that, then don't do it. But just know that it does work sometimes. <laughs> Or if you really want to, you know, support your local bike shop by subsidizing them, then go ahead and pay full price. Just kidding. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, maybe if it was a shop, I was only going to visit one time. <laughs> right. But, yeah, don't, don't beat your regular shop up on their price. Yeah. Yeah, and what I'm talking to, I, I don't, I've never done it for, like, a brand new thing, like, you know, something's full price. But, you know, if it, like you said, Greg, if there's a bike that's been sitting around for a couple years and they're having a hard time selling it, then, you know, I try to make them my best offer and see if, if they're interested. So anyway, moving on. So what about buying used bike stuff? We've written at least a couple articles about this, about how to find good bikes, good used bikes on websites like Craigslist and eBay and even Pink Bike. Greg, what's your opinion about buying used mountain bike equipment? When it comes to complete bikes, I pretty much only buy used bikes. Like I'm not going to buy a new bike. I think we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but as Jeff's recent article indicated, you know, bikes depreciate a lot in the first year, um, up to, I think it was 40% in the first year that they are out. So, you know, there's a lot of people like private parties you can buy from. Those can be very hit or miss, but a great option is to buy a used rental bike. Again, talking about your local bike shop. So one of the 
A few of the benefits of doing this is that the shop often maintains them very well, and they also still provide certain repair warranties when you buy them, plus the original, the bike's original warranty, so which is a, a big boost over buying from a private party. Bonus is if you live near the shop and you can get a sense of how much that specific bike or size that you're looking for was ridden or not, that can also give you an indication of how much wear and tear has actually happened to that bike and then how good of a deal you're getting. So a great example is last spring I tested a gravel grinder from my local shop, Absolute Bikes, and loved it. I rode it for like a week, gave it back, you know, it was it was awesome. Could really see myself owning that bike. And then the other day I walked in the shop and uh I saw that exact same bike and that exact same model I rode out front, you know, on discount like a year later, and it was down like almost a thousand dollars off of a three thousand dollar MSRP. And Looking at it, after having ridden it, I could tell that I may have been the only person to ride that bike all year. So, you know, at that point, you know, you're getting a, you're getting a heck of a deal for an almost brand new bike. So there's, there are deals like that to be had out there. Yeah. I bought one of my first used mountain bikes or one of my first mountain bikes ever from a bike shop and it had been used. So some bike shops will do like consignment sales as well, where they'll have, you know, customers will bring in their bike and you know, put a price tag on it and you can buy it right there in the shop. So and a lot Jeff, of times Jeff will come in and ask for $200. Right. I'll be like, <laughs> That's too much. And then they'll call the guy up and they'll, no, just kidding. No, with the used one though, the shop, a lot of times they'll give it a good once over too. you know, when, when the owner brings it in, they'll make sure everything's working, chains all lubed up and everything before they put it out on their floor. So yeah, buying, buying from a bike shop is a good deal. Even if it's a used bike. What about shopping online? So on single tracks and a lot of other websites, you can go in and compare prices if you're looking for a specific item. And you can see what a bunch of different online retailers are charging for that same product. And a lot of times it'll be it'll be crazy differences. You know, one of the things that comes to mind is like hydration packs. Like if you're looking for a camelback, you know, certain camelback pack, a lot of times you'll find that some retailer you've never heard of has got the pack for like half what everybody else has it for. So comparison shopping is a good idea and and you can do it really quickly these days with a lot of the online tools. Greg, where do you go when you're shopping online for bike parts or where have you found good deals? I mean, there are a lot of bike specific websites like uh, Jensen USA and uh, is price point still around or did they go out of business? They're gone. They're gone. Okay, not price point anymore, but Jensen's still around. And there's a few websites like that where you can buy bike-specific stuff. But uh, And I used to do that a lot, but these days, I pretty much buy everything I buy online off of Amazon. And there, it's what amazes me is like Amazon pretty much always has like the lowest price. And there are so many additional ways to save money on Amazon, whether it's like free shipping via Prime or uh, one of the latest things I've done. You know, I'm not a proponent of credit, but... When you buy an Amazon, you always have to use your credit card. And we just got an Amazon credit card like a couple months ago, and that saves us an additional 5% on everything we buy on Amazon. So I was running the numbers, and I was like, shoot, if we had bought this you know, a few years ago, that would uh, have saved us like thousands of dollars or something. You know, So it's just uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I have that same credit card. I got it like 10 years ago. That's, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome. But yeah, the thing I was going to say about Amazon lately, what I've been seeing, it's not – super great for finding name brand stuff 
Or if you do find it, a lot of times it is full price. But what I'm seeing more now is like generic brand items, you know, from a lot of this stuff is made in China and ships right from China. Um, a lot of times the quality is not as great, but um, if you're looking for something simple, I'm trying to think of an example, you know, we've seen like bike racks. I don't know gloves if there's any or yeah, gloves and yeah. things, we, but we're even seeing like bike racks, you know, like a two bike tray style hitch rack for your car. You know, you might be able to find one on Amazon for like 150 bucks. And, you know, I don't have any experience with these. I haven't tried them myself to know if they're even worth 150 bucks, but that is a good option to look at if you're out there. One, another item is like dropper posts. There's that DNM brand. And I know Seth from Seth's bike hacks has tested at least one of those. And he said it was, it was decent. So a lot of that stuff, it's so cheap too. You can take a chance on it. Like I bought that GPS for $17 or something and you know, it worked. It told me some numbers, uh, <laughs> but you know, it, yeah. If you're not looking for something that's super nice or super durable, then you can find it on Amazon for a lot cheaper. Yeah. To be fair, like a lot of the stuff I do buy on Amazon regularly is like certain things that are consumables that I need to buy over and over again. So for instance, like a certain type of chain lube that I really like that my bike shop doesn't carry, I can get on Amazon and get it cheaper than the shop. Things like chamois butter and uh, if I want a specific tire that I've used before, you know, I could save a few bucks on Amazon. But sometimes I'm a little bit risk averse to like going out and buying stuff I've never tried, especially if it has to fit just right. So, you know, I do use a little bit of caution on some of those things. Yeah, I use Amazon occasionally, not a ton for bike stuff because unless, like you said, Greg, unless I'm looking for something very specific, I find Amazon's interface really shitty like it's so it's not good for browsing you know where i can go to like jensen or competitive cyclist or chain reaction or something like that and i can be like i want a new handlebar and i can just you know look at handlebars and i can narrow it down by like width or clamp diameter or something like that where you know you type in handlebar on amazon and you get like forty seven thousand results and (laughs) you know forty six thousand nine hundred ninety nine of them are garbage and i it's yeah, so it's not that great for bra- that great for just browsing if you're like generally in the market for something. But if you're looking for a very specific item, um, I've definitely found that uh, you know there are deals to be had on Amazon. Yeah, right on. So another way to save is to look for uh, discounts or frequent customer programs at your local bike shop. Greg, does your bike have something like that? Yeah, so our local trail organization, Slide Mountain Trails, we've got like a basic $25 membership to support the trails, but that gets you 10% off at all of the bike shops in town. Plus they donate a percentage to SMT. And with that extra 10% off, you know, we're talking about saving a few bucks on Amazon that pretty much like cuts the price difference down, you know? So a, I can end up buying the product, the same price at my shop. It's more convenient than the shop donates some money to trails. So it's like a win, win, win all the way around. And, you know, I, I spend way more than $250 a year at my local shop. So at 10% off, I start, you know, I easily pay for that membership and then start saving a whole heck of a lot more money. So, you know, there are programs to be had out there because, you know, these smart business owners, they want to be competitive. So, you know, while they might take a few bucks off the top for the occasional like walkthrough customer, if you're a regular, there's usually ways that you can uh, save more money. 
Yeah, and big retailers offer similar programs as well. The you know REI has their co-op program where I don't even know what it costs anymore. 50 bucks or 100 bucks or something to join and you get 10% off. I think it's just 25. No, 25 bucks. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. So yeah, and it's one time. It's not it's like a one yearly. time. Exactly. So yeah, I, I, we bought a Yakima bike rack system, you know, probably 15 years ago from REI and bought the membership at that time and you know, been saving 25 or 10% ever since. And then performance bike has a similar one. There seems a little gimmicky. Like there's a lot of like extra points weekend and, you know, there's a lot of stuff, but if you want to save money, you can, you can go through all the hoops and figure out, you know, exactly what you need to do to save with them. Okay. So what about DIY parts? So what are some things that people can do that they don't actually have to buy for their bike, but they can actually fabricate for themselves or use found items for. Yeah, you can get pretty creative with some of this stuff. A great example is using an old inner tube as a chainstay protector. And I've done this on a few of my bikes, especially older hardtails. And you can like cut that inner tube and zip tie it on one end and wrap it around your chainstay. And boom, you've protected your chainstay and kept yourself from buying extra parts, you know. And uh, along with this, you can repurpose a lot of used bike parts that are no longer usable on the bike into other things. Like I've seen people use parts of tires as down to protectors or over the tailgate of their truck to put their bikes on. So you can get pretty creative out there. And uh, especially if you're like a Pinterest Pinterest person, I'm sure there's like a hundred different ideas on Pinterest. For this. <laughs> yeah. For sure. And yeah, people also make all kinds of art and stuff out of bike parts. So, you know, maybe it's a little side business for you. You, you can turn all your used bike stuff into jewelry and sell it and then buy more bike stuff. Okay. So a tip that I wanted to share is to avoid financing a mountain bike if you can. Uh, so this is, this is my dad's speech here, but basically, you know, as Greg mentioned, bikes, mountain bikes in particular, seem to depreciate around 40% in the first year. And that's way worse than a car. You know, a lot of people will, will tell you that, you know, a car depreciates so much, you shouldn't buy a new car. Same goes with bikes. I mean, they depreciate a ton. So definitely, if you're financing it too, that's, that's compounding the problem, making it even worse. So my advice is to either save up for the bike that you really want and then buy it when you have the money or... Uh, to maybe adjust your expectations a little bit and don't buy a bike that you can't afford. Whatever whatever money you got, that should be the bike you get and you should enjoy it. Okay, so along those same lines, and, and this is kind of related to downgrading your bike, but there are a lot of trends in mountain biking and every year there's new stuff and the hot new thing or the hot new standard, but we can save money by kind of avoiding those trends. Right, Greg? Yeah, I mean, you know, you see everybody on Instagram with their new Enduro helmet, their baggy Yeti jersey, high-performance cargo shorts, and you start looking at the price tags on that stuff, and you're like, do I really need this? And the answer is, hell no. You know, you, you know, if you've got money, sure, but we're talking about saving money here, and uh, that stuff is expensive. Have you ever looked at some of the, how much those, some of those baggy jerseys cost? You you can be talking a hundred bucks for a glorified t-shirt. So I've got some three pocket jerseys that I picked up at a thrift store. Rather my wife picked up. I, I can't stand that stuff, but, uh, 
But, you know, they're, they're great jerseys, you know, literally $5 and they probably sold for $75 like 15 years ago and they still work great. They might not be Yeti blue, but you know, I'm, I'm rocking it all the same. But, you know, with a lot of the stuff we've talked about, I mean, the same goes for bikes, you know, rock your hardtail 26er and love it. You know, you don't have to buy a new bike as long as you can find parts for it. And other things like it's shocking how long the same old hydration pack can go for. You know, it might get dirty, it might get a little worn, but rarely do those things ever just fail on you, you know? So embrace the grunge and like the 1990s look and uh, just replace the reservoir inside of your pack if it gets really nasty. I mean, and there's, you know, there's no end of things like that. I mean, I think that's everything that drives our consumer culture in America is wanting to look a certain way or fit in a certain way. And if you're talking about saving money, you've got to put a lot of those sort of image things on the back burner. Yeah. My kind of my rule of thumb is that I'm going to replace a bike or a bike part, you know, as soon as it's not fun anymore, you know, if it feels like the thing's always breaking down or, you know, I'm having trouble riding the trails that I like riding, then maybe it's time for a new bike. But otherwise, just because the wheels are a little bigger now, or, you know, the, the frame is a little wider, like that's not a reason to get a whole new bike. You know, I look at it as, is it going to, is it going to make it a lot more fun for me or am I not having fun with what I have? And then I kind of go from there. So what about trail snacks? A lot of people like the convenience of, you know, cliff bars and that kind of thing on the trail, but there's a cheaper way, right, Aaron? Yeah, you could just make your own at home. You know, a lot of these things that you eat, they're, you know, the energy bars and energy chews and energy gummies and energy gels. Well, any food is energy. You know, that's like a bag of Cheetos is energy. Like it's literally what it is. So yeah, don't, don't get sucked in. I mean, unless you're, you know, a super racer and you're very regimented in your you know, you're training for race day. So you want to be eating the same things you're going to be eating during the race. And, you know, that's a different story, but just for the general trail rider, like, yeah, you don't need to buy, like, you don't need to buy into that energy waffles and energy bars. You can bring whatever you like to eat, bring a slice of pizza that's left over, wrap it up in some foil, you know, make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, bring fruit. That's a really easy one. I like to bring bananas and apples on rides, one of my favorite things is uh, on the trail is gummy worms. I like the worms because they're a little bit, a little bit more substantial than the gummy bears. But <laughs> if you look at them, if you look at the ingredients, like they're pretty much the same as you'll find in an energy chew from you know some energy sports energy maker company, and uh, you know you can buy like a five pound bag of gummy bears for like six bucks. So you know. You save a lot of money there. There's also there's a really good cookbook I wanted to mention that uh, I use. It's called Feed Zone Portables from uh, the people behind Scratch Labs. And they have a ton of different recipes. And they're really varied as well. So it's not like all just sweet bars or something like that. They have savory things and you know, little like egg McMuffin things and rice cakes and granola and yeah just a ton of stuff so that's a really good book i think it's like 25 bucks but if you like cooking and you know you want to save a, save some money and know what exactly is going into your food then uh, it, it's a good investment okay two more quick tips about gear and then we'll move on to travel so a lot of times 
for whatever reason, you'll need to rent a bike. So either if you are traveling or say you have a friend in town or, or even a friend who you're trying to get into mountain biking and you want to take them out with you, you can save money on a rental by just borrowing a friend's bike. And I know that sounds obvious and it's not always convenient, but if you do a little bit of legwork before your friend comes into town or whatever, you can usually find somebody who has an extra bike who's not going to be needing it at the time and usually all it costs you is a six pack of beer so borrowing a friend's bike can save you money and then another piece of advice i wanted to share is to say not to buy bike insurance there are some companies out there that are selling insurance for your bike so if in case your bike breaks or you get stolen or anything like that it's like supplemental insurance sometimes even when you buy the bike you can get like a replacement plan or a you know it's like best buy used to be when you buy something they try to sell you the like extended warranty Uh, my advice is to is to not buy that so if if it costs let's say 100 bucks a year that means that really they're paying out like 50 bucks a year so in the end it's you're not getting your money's worth for that you might as well just save that money and you know pay for the repair or the replacement when it does come up if it comes up yeah and also Review your, uh, I was going to say, review your renters or home insurance policy because a lot of times um, your bike will be covered under that. Like I found that with my policy that, um, you know, it, for instance, if I was on vacation and something happened and, you know, my bike got stolen, it'd actually be covered under my uh, insurance policy. So read the fine print. Okay, moving on to travel. So one of the big costs associated, once you have a mountain bike, you know, mountain biking is essentially free except for getting to the places that you want to ride. So one of the things that I like to do whenever I'm driving to a trailhead is to carpool uh, because obviously that saves on gas and vehicle wear and tear. And it also makes it more fun because you got your buddy to talk with on the way up to the trailhead and on the way back. So carpooling is definitely a good money saver. Another thing I like to do whenever possible is to ride to the ride. So I like trying to find trails that I can ride close to my house that I can ride to without having to get in the car and pay for gas and pay for vehicle expenses. What about you guys? Do you guys do either of those? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we definitely carpool as much as possible. Sometimes, you know, we'll, if it's going to be a really long trip, we may, you know, people coming from different parts of the city will find somewhere to meet up where we can drop off a couple cars and all load into one. So it kind of adds another, yeah, adds another stop, but it, yeah, like you said, it saves on, on gas and it is, it is more enjoyable if you got a bunch of friends packed into a car heading to the trail than just driving by yourself. I try to ride to the ride whenever possible, you know, and I think that that's, uh, John Fish has written a little bit about this sort of uh, you know mountain biking lifestyle and living within a uh, distance of a trail and choosing to live there for that specific reason. You know, and that can save you a lot of money. Also saves you like time behind the windshield. Like it's amazing sometimes how much time we spend driving to and from the ride, and then <laughs> how little time we actually spend on the trail. Another point with carpooling is that. You know, lots of times, um, if you're living in the mountains, you want to do a shuttle ride or point to point, you can often pay for a shuttle, but uh, especially if you've got a few guys that are doing it, you can set up your own shuttle. And, you know, that might mean you're driving two or three vehicles, but you start adding up 25, 30, 35 bucks a person, and you've definitely come out ahead and paid for your uh, beer and meal after your own shuttle. So it takes more time again, but can save you a few bucks. 
Right on. What about tips for long distance trips, trips where you're going, you know, out of state or somewhere like that? What are some ways you could save money? So this is a big one where you've got to decide how much your time is worth. But if you've got time to spend, once you factor in transporting or renting a bike, uh, renting a car to get around wherever you're going in your destination and other associated fees, driving often becomes way more economical than flying, even if you're going across the entire nation. I run these numbers <laughs> very frequently because I'm flying a lot and I'm road tripping to you know, visit family a lot. And we end up driving most of the time because it ends up being cheaper. And the more people you squeeze in your car, of course, the more economical it becomes. So anywhere from two people uh, up to, you know, if you fill a van of like eight or 10 people, you know, you start seeing those dollar signs and uh, and saving more money. So again, it, that's if you've got the time for it. Sometimes if you're looking at spending, you know, two days each way driving, then, you know, you've just burned four days of vacation time. So maybe that's not worth it anymore. But that's the only decision you can make. Yeah. I'll say like renting a bike, you know, that's kind of, that can be fun for a day or two. But if you're going on a riding vacation where you're going to be in a new place for a week, riding a bunch of rad trails, you may want to ride your own bike you know you may want want to have something that you're comfortable and familiar with so flying with your bike is stupid expensive i think delta charges now i think it's 175 each way oh yeah and then you know there's uh, associated fees of or or related expensive with having either a dedicated bike case or a box because you know a lot of times the airport wouldn't won't even accept a bike in a regular size bike box because it's going to be too big so you could run into even more fees there, but then a dedicated bag like something from Evoc or something like that, you know, that's four or five hundred bucks. So you're talking a lot of money to fly with your bike. But there's a service uh, called Bike Flights that does that will ship your bike via FedEx, and they negotiate rates with FedEx directly, so they're able to be really competitive. Like you couldn't get the same price if you just rolled into your local FedEx store and tried to ship a bike. So this morning I checked, and you know, to fly a bike or to ship a bike from Atlanta to Portland, it would be eighty dollars each way. So one hundred and sixty bucks round trip. You know, that's less than the cost of flying with your bike in one direction. So. That's uh, definitely an affordable way to, to do that, to get your bike across the country and have, you know, be able to ride your, your own bike somewhere new. But, um, you know, you will, there's a little bit of logistics with that because you are going to be without your bike for a few days beforehand and then afterwards. And of course you have to have somewhere to ship it to. So there is, you know, there is that aspect of it, but I think for the, the money that you'll save, it'll be worth it. So Aaron, I've got a couple questions since I'm planning a trip right now. And so do they provide boxes for you or do you need your own bike box to ship it in? Either way, you can buy one of their boxes. They have like they have different sized cardboard boxes that fit, you know, whatever bike type you're shipping. I think they have like a BMX bike bike box and a road and a mountain and a downhill. So they're all like varying sizes so you can get the exact box you need. And I think their cardboard boxes are I think they're like 40 or 50 bucks. I, I'm not sure. So don't, don't quote me on that, but they're a little more uh, substantial than just your typical bike box that you would see that, you know, you'd get from a bike shop or something like that. So they're going to have a little bit, they're going to be a little bit better designed and a little bit more padded and should be a little bit easier to pack. Nice. And what about international? Do you just more money to ship international with them? 
I don't know if they ship internationally. I would think so, but yeah, I don't know for certain. Sorry, I'm totally putting Aaron on the spot here. My own information. <laughs> I'm in no way affiliated with bike flights. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the other piece of the puzzle when you're traveling is lodging, and that can really add up if you're spending multiple nights out. One of the things that I like to do is to look for an Airbnb or to use a website like VRBO to find a vacation house or uh, a lot of times it'll be like a condo or apartment. And the thing with booking like an Airbnb house, and we've done articles about Airbnb. I think recently we did one about 25 really cool Airbnb houses that you can rent that are close to mountain bike destinations. Uh, So definitely check that out. But for example, you could rent a house that has three bedrooms and pile a bunch of people in for a bike trip. And that's going to be way cheaper than renting three hotel rooms and, uh, and then eating all your meals out and stuff. Because if you rent a house, a lot of times, or almost every time you're going to have a kitchen, uh, which is nice. So you can cook some meals there and save some money that way as well. Uh, what are some other places that you guys like to stay that are a little bit cheaper than your standard hotel room? You can also try hostels. So hostels can be quite comfortable and they'll have great amenities like a kitchen that you can use, um, but the costs are going to be on the level of car camping, which we're going to talk a little bit more about. Um, and I think uh, hostels are on the rise, I think, in the U.S. At least I know a lot of people who are starting hostels and they're they're blooming in all the towns I'm visiting. So you know, that's one that I don't think many people think of, um, but it's becoming a great option in a lot of these popular destinations. How do you find hostel rooms or whatever? Are they on the standard travel websites or do you have to be in the know to find those places? So, you know, we, we just talked about Airbnb. I've seen a lot of hostels on Airbnb. So you can get, they'll advertise on Airbnb or some of these other travel or vacation websites, but lots of times the hostel owners aren't quite up as up on the advertising side as they should be. So if you're planning to go to, say, Crested Butte, just try Googling Crested Butte plus hostel and you're going to get a result, you know. So try that and uh, social media, those sorts. Cool. So you mentioned car camping, Greg. I know you've done a good bit of that. What's your take on car camping as a money-saving tip? You know, car camping can be a great way to save some money, especially if you find a good campground near the trails and that adds like a convenience level. Um, but the, you know, there's a few different sides of this. One side is developed campground costs can add up quickly. Like if you're spending, you know, 20 to 30 a night, plus you have to buy your wood from there if you want to have a fire, plus you're buying ice, you know, that can actually um, add up pretty quickly. But in a lot of places, you can look for free dispersed camping. So in National Forest and Bureau of Land Management land for um, especially. And these are basically you can go out and camp just about anywhere you want as long as you're not leaving a trace. And that can be a great way to save some money. However, the flip side is uh, if you're going on a popular weekend, it could be very hard to find a dispersed camping site despite how easy it sounds. And I've been there where we went out Memorial Day weekend to Pisgah and we rolled in on a Friday night and we could not find a dispersed campsite or a regular campsite or campsite of any sort. And we ended up in a hotel, which was not fun and was very expensive. So sometimes reserving your campsite in advance, paying those campground fees can be worth its weight in gold from having you, you know, wander around looking for a site and maybe not finding one. So you got to weigh both 
parts to that equation. Right. So one of the ways that you can camp for free, probably the cheapest option on our list here is bike packing, right? Greg, you've done some of that recently. What's your take on bike packing? Yeah, and I actually just did a quick overnight um, on Memorial Day weekend, uh, partially because I just wanted to get out in the woods and camp. But I went bike packing because I was like, well, all the campgrounds are going to be full. I rode through some of the dispersed camping areas. They're awful. But you get a few miles out in the trail, and then you've got all to yourself, which is is pretty special in a whole lot of ways. So, you know, bike packing, there's some startup cost uh, for the gear. So specifically bike bags and uh, lightweight camping gear that might not be cheap off the front end. But once you have it, uh, you can literally hit the trail for the cost of food and fuel for your stove, or maybe even not fuel for your stove if you're just cooking over fire. So, um, Again, that's another thing where it's sort of like biking where you got a startup cost, but once you got the stuff, it can last you a really long time, especially if you buy quality. One of the things that seems to be getting really popular right now is the van life, right? What do you guys think about about sleeping out in your vehicle? Have you ever done that, Aaron? Yeah, I've definitely done the dirtbag thing where you just sleep in your in your car. But yeah, the van life, uh, you know, that can get expensive if you're talking about getting a sprinter van and kitting it out with, you know, a bunch of custom touches. Like we saw uh, when Greg and I were out in Moab for spring outer bike, we saw was I think outside outside van was the company. They're out of Oregon near Portland, and the van they had was incredible. But I think he said it would have been. You know what? Close to a hundred and no, I think he, I think he said like two fifteen. It was okay. <laughs> Never mind. There you go. I think so. it was a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. So, you, but if you, I mean, if you want to go true dirtbag status, and you know, you could just roll out your sleeping pad and sleeping bag in the back of your car. Like, yeah, my forerunner, I can fold the seats down and sleep back there. So that's pretty crucial. Yeah, I've done that once. It wasn't as great as I thought it was going to be, but <laughs> no, it never is. But it's it's not as nice as camping generally, unless it's cold. Right. Yep. Okay, so I have one final tip, and this one is for saving money on races and events, and that is to register for events early. Most races and events are going to have like an early bird discount or. At the very least, the prices are going to be cheapest when you register early versus, you know, wait until the last minute. So if you know you want to do a race, my advice is always to just go ahead and sign up because that'll, one, force you to, to train and to do it, give you more time to get ready for it. And two, it's going to save you some money. So definitely register early. And then there are also, these days, there are a lot of like unofficial races and events that have really low or no entry fee. Right, Aaron? Was that the hurricane was sort of like that? I think it was $40. And that's just basically to help Carlos, who organizes it to keep the site going and, you know, for him to go out and scout it every year and make changes and updates to the route. You know, there is a lot that goes into it. So, yeah, there's like a, a $40 donation basically for that. But yeah, there's other events. I think like the, like the tour divide and stuff. I don't think there's any cost for that. Right. That's all just yeah, bragging as far as to I know. show up because there's, yeah, there's no sponsors. There's no prizes. There's no sags or anything like that. Yeah. 2,500 miles of racing for free. So yeah, that's a good deal. Um, <laughs> and then also there, are, you know, if you look around, a lot of local bike clubs will put on, race series and things like that there's like a lot of i see a lot of people doing the six pack time trial series 
where, you know, it'll be like every Tuesday night during the summer, they have a race and the entry fee is a six pack. And then, you know, at the end of the series, they have a big party. So there's definitely plenty of opportunities. You don't have to sign up for the, you know, really big, like, name brand races that cost hundreds of dollars there's plenty of opportunities to compete uh, that won't cost you a ton well great we hope you've enjoyed hearing about these tips for saving money and hopefully you will find them to be profitable that's all we have this week talk to you again next week peace